0: Well, it's great to be with you uh, this evening. Thank you for the invitation. And honestly, I do feel more blessed uh, than I, uh, than when I came here to, because I've had so many people praying for me as I've been here. And it's so great to be welcomed here. And it's great to get to know some of you in the process. Heard lots about the community here at G2. And it's uh, great to be up north uh, with your snow and everything. Literally, I was saying to the, um, uh, to the first congregation, I was saying that literally... About five minutes out of London on the train, then the snow appeared. It's like London just devoid of snow. I was so excited. I went on FaceTime straight as soon as I got off at York Station and uh, FaceTime my kids. I was like, "Look, it's snow!" It's like they hadn't seen it ever before. Um, my um, my youngest son um, said to me, um, uh, 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 two that's uh, right, two Christmases ago, um, he was really really uh, excited about." Christmas coming. And um, he was just really, really built up for it. He was at the time, he was four years old, just really excited about it. And uh, and then on Christmas Day, it was obvious that he was a bit disappointed. And um, so we were like, oh, so what's wrong, Kai? What's what's up, buddy? And he's like, it's been a snow on Christmas Day. And I was like, uh, yeah, well, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't always snow in England, and it doesn't always snow, particularly on Christmas Day either. He was like, oh, he said, so, but where does it snow on Christmas Day so I can move there? And I said, well, you know, your mum's from the States, from America, and it often, in fact, always, it snows in winter in Chicago. And, she, and he was like, America? I was like, yeah, he said, oh, man. I was like, what? He said, but Donald Trump lives there. <laughs> So, in theme with the video before. Listen, it's great to be with you. Uh, it's great to uh, uh, spend, spend this time uh, together with you. Now, if you were born in 1980 uh, or after, you would be called by some sociologists uh, uh, as a millennial. I like to say to the congregation back home uh, that I like to count myself a little bit as a millennial. I'm a 79 baby, so I'm real hinge, and I know yeah, all right, thank you. Like, you smug, digital native lot, like, get it. Um, I'm kind of a digital the migrant, I think they called me. Uh, people that never grew up with it. I mean, I literally grew up, the most exciting thing I could do on my computer at school was colour in on paint. I mean, I don't know, Luke, Luke and I remember that. Um, putting you in the same camp as me. But if you if you're a millennial here or above, you have been told one thing over and over again that you may not be aware of, but you will recognise... When I say it, this mantra that has informed your generation and is now uh, most of, uh, as you enter the workplace, many uh, many millennials are doing so now. They are shaping the workforce and therefore the world in which we live in, this mantra is taking hold. And the mantra is this. You can change the world. You've been told that in one way or another. For almost all of your life, almost before you could even understand those words that you've heard, you can change the world. You've been told it over and over again. But the reality is, as we all know, life is not that simple. The reality is, a lot of us strive just simply to put food on the plate. And and those of us who, who have families raising children, and it's just enough to wake up in the day and get through the day unscarred. Never mind this idea that we might go on and change uh, the world. We feel in many ways that the demands are so high. We feel very, very ordinary, if we're honest. And yet, I believe that we are called to live extraordinary lives. But how? And I don't know about you, but when I want to take a step out in faith often or in areas of my life, I want to say, yeah, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to try and uh, make an imprint on this world in some way, hopefully positively. I feel like sometimes it's like this is tide pushing against me. Uh, A few uh, years ago, we were going to see relatives in the States. and, And when you've got a family and kids and everything, it's just like everything adds up price wise and so we try and get the cheapest flight possible and you think yeah that's pretty that's a pretty good flight uh, price for a flight and and then you times it by 6 and you're like oh my days that's a terrible price for existing on earth like that's just just awful. And so uh, we got the cheapest flight we possibly could, an internal flight within the States, landing in Chicago with three small children at the time at 4 a.m. It was Honestly, it was that cheap. It was had to be done. And uh, we, we landed, and honestly, we were all just blurry-eyed. We're carrying one of the children. My wife and I, we got our bags. We're kind of making our way down to, to pick up the luggage from the carousel, and, and we're on our way down an escalator. Uh, when I realized in that moment... Uh, that I'd forgotten my back and left it on the plane. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't, oh. And um, I don't know about you, but I, I hate traveling with paraphernalia. Like, one of my worst experiences uh, always with flying is the security line. Like, I'm that person behind you. If you haven't got your stuff together, with your laptop, out your bag, shoes off, that all that stuff that you're told over and over, I'm that person behind you going... <sighs> You know the rules. There's signs everywhere. You've done this before, most of you like, oh I've got to take my laptop out. I didn't know how to take my laptop out. Yes, put the laptop outside and put the phone in the thing. We've all done this before. Let's move on quickly, shall we? Oh, I've got my belt on. Yeah, but I've got to go through again. Like, I honestly, security drives me mad. So I don't wear anything with lace up shoes. So I don't wanna spend like 18 years, it doesn't take me that long, doing my shoes and I just cannot bear it and so I wear easy slip on shoes and that particular morning I was wearing flip flops and as I was going down the escalator I had this moment of revelation at 4 in the morning, three children in tow and I realised I'd forgotten my bag, I think I need to go and get my bag and I turned around and started making my way up the escalator, running up the escalator, literally I was literally making no progress at all, up the escalator and at one point I just kind of end up tripping, catching the Edge of my toe on the sharp edges of the escalator step and collapsing in a heap and made my way gradually down to the bottom in a bloody mess. And I don't know about you, but I feel like life is often like that. We do our best just to get on with things and just, just to make strides in the right direction. And and you'll be pleased to know I did pick up the bag and did the sensible thing and actually asked an official person to go and get it. Like duh. That's what you do. Uh, anyway, by that point, I was hospitalized and it was all awful. No, I wasn't, but I was limping around the airport. But I don't know about you, but I just feel like life is often like that going against the grain all the time. And we're going to look at what it means to be ordinary people living, we hope, extraordinary lives. And we're going to take our lead in this series from the man that we know as Elijah. Because he was a man who was indeed ordinary, as we're going to discover. But lived the most extraordinary life. Not much is written about him. It's extraordinary really about the man Elijah because we don't have very much to go on. Books 1 Kings and 2 Kings is what we have. It tells the history of this period of time. Vast books. And just kind of over the, overlapping the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings is a, a little moment that we get the story of Elijah. Just seems like an incidental character in many ways, and yet he's often mentioned in the same breath as Moses. Jesus refers to him as a significant prophet, and yet, unlike all the other major prophets that fill the latter part of our Bible, he doesn't have a book to his name. John the Baptist was seen as an echo of him. There's an expectation within, uh, within uh, Jewish thought that, there's, that, that Elijah will return before the Messiah. Like Elijah's a significant character, and yet so little of our Bible is devoted to his life. What was it about him that captivated uh, those that were around him and knew him enough that he's considered a major figure in not just Jewish thought but Christian understanding? Well, I'm going to give a bit of context into where he arrives in our Bibles, in 1 Kings, before the bit that we've just had read to us. The people of Israel are people chosen by God to change their world. They understood that to be the people of Israel was to, were to be change agents in the world around them. They were chosen to make a difference in their world. To live extraordinarily different prophetic lives. And as was often common in that culture in those days, thousands of years ago, ancient peoples were often defined by and their identity was shaped by their understanding of the land and the the geography that they inhabited. They were a migrant population. They moved from place to place. They were nomadic. And then they eventually settled and they formed one kingdom, the Kingdom of Israel. We can see a map here. That's what it looked like, the kingdom of Israel that was, that was the promised land as spoken about with the prophets of Moses and so on and so forth. And that kingdom was united under Saul and then David and all was good. But it only lasted a generation. David's son Solomon, it was getting pretty bad. And then eventually under his son Rehoboam, King David's grandson. They, they then divided into two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. If, if you like, it was the Brexit of 500 before, uh, before Christ, 500 BC. Uh, you might want to call it Isra- Isrexit. No. Right. Thank you. Thank you, one person. Brilliant. Um, and so these 12 tribes of Israel divided themselves up. Ten of them formed the new nation of Israel. They rebelled against the king at the time, and Judah uh, was the two other tribes. And the books of one and two kings tell the story of, guess what, kings. The kings that ruled these different nations to the north and to the south, Israel and Judah. And the kings are judged on one criteria and one criteria only. The effectiveness of their reign, whether they were good or bad, the criteria by which they were judged was whether they led their people in the worship of the Israelite God, Yahweh, or whether they led them in the worship of other gods. That was how they would discern to be good or bad. Why? Because worship is the core center of who we are as human beings. The question is not for each one of us whether we worship at all. Do I worship? The question more like is what or why do I worship? One of the religions That the people of Israel were confronted with when they inhabited this new land and began to settle in what became Israel was a fertility religion, Baal worship. King Ahab was one of the kings of the new kingdom of Israel, and he is drawn into this worship of Baal. He married a woman called Jezebel, who was a priestess of this cult. And she brought her Baal worship into the heart of the royal family. And because the kings were significant in the identity of a nation, it became the heartbeat of that culture. Originally, the Baal was worshipped by Canaanites, but began to be practised by the people of Israel. You might ask yourself, well, why on earth would the people of Israel worship anyone other than the God Yahweh? Well, imagine this, you are the people of Israel, for a moment. And you have been a nomadic people for a while. You've gone through horrendous things as a people group, generation after generation of slavery, and then into wilderness. And then you are led into this fertile land. And you notice that the people around you who already inhabit this land, the Canaanites, they worship a God called Baal, who is the God of the fertility. In other words, they walk suddenly into a green and pleasant land where plants actually grow and fruit is born and and they can eat off the land and they can raise the land and sell to their neighbor and make themselves a livelihood. and, And they look around and they say, you are the people of Israel. And you look around and you say, well, this is good. This is the kind of place that we want to be. This does look like the promised land to us. And you look around and the people who are already there are saying yes. And the reason that it is so fertile and so good and that you can eat off the land and you can cultivate the crops and sell them to your neighbor and make a living from that is because of one God called Baal. Because he is the God of fertility. So the people of Israel, of course, are attracted by that. They look at the land around them and think, well, that's the kind of God we are interested in. Because it seems like the God that we follow keeps leading us into desert places. Into places of wilderness where we have to pray for manna from heaven. Where we have to pray for the rain to fall so we can just have something to drink. This God, the God Baal, seems to know what he's doing. The grass was literally greener. It's easy, isn't it? To live the kind of life that we lead following the God that we believe in, those of us who are here, who sign up to be followers of Jesus. And to look at our friends who may not do and and who live a different kind of life to us and say the grass looks greener for them. They look like they're having a bit more fun. They seem to let it all hang loose and have fun and and I can engage with that. And, And yet what I seem to be following is a God that seems to be a bit boring. Doesn't seem to want me to have any fun whatsoever. The grass seems greener. And of course, what it was, was not that at all. Baal was this god, the god of fertility. He's often portrayed in art and sculpture, particularly at the time, as holding a a stick of uh, lightning. And, And thunder is portrayed as well because thunder and lightning, that signifies rain. Rain brings life to desert grounds. And in the winter, it was was understood that Baal would go into the underworld. And of course, the land in the winter becomes less fertile. And in the springtime, around this time of year, the worship of Baal would begin again. Baal would come back to life, it was understood by this ancient cult. And hopefully, in returning to life, he would bring fertility back with him. The fertility of the land would happen. But what would bring him back to life in the understanding of their worship was an offering. An offering that in and of itself signifies, represents life. The offering of blood. In this ancient practice of worship of Baal, they would sacrifice often animals to the god Baal, to summon him out from the underworld so that he may bestow fertility upon the land. But sometimes practiced, as it was for Jezebel, as it was for some of the Israelites as well, it wasn't just animal blood, but human blood. The offering of human life would be an offering to Baal which was designed to bring him back to life. And so they would gather to worship around the springtime to summon him back to life. And they would gather in a central place, often a high point, And it would often be there that they would set a temple of Baal. You can go to some parts of the Middle East now and see temples dedicated to the god Baal. And in the middle would be an idol carved out of stone. And in the middle of this idol would be a fire, a roaring pit of fire. The Bible uses the word "tofet." And mothers who practice in the worship of Baal would hand their babies to the priests, and the priest's responsibility in this act of worship to summon Baal back from the dead would be to offer the life of this baby, and the baby would be placed in the middle. Of the fire. That happened. And it's horrific. Why would anybody do that? Why would anyone do that to any other person is beyond me, let alone a mother to her child. Why? Well, they wanted Baal's blessing for personal, financial, material success. They knew, or they believed rather, that if they could make the right offering of human life, they would be given all that they needed because, of course, he was the God of fertility. For crops to grow, they would be able to eat. They'd be able to cultivate and sell to their neighbour and create a living for themselves. Their dependence. Of all that they needed and wanted was in the person in the God of Baal. Human life and the sanctity of life was sacrificed for personal gain. You see, at the heart of Baal worship was not worship of Baal at all. The heart of Baal worship was the worship of ourselves. The individuals would come to worship Baal for what they Could get, and they would give up even their own for personal gain. The worship was not about Baal, it was all about themselves, their needs, their desires, the things that they wanted for themselves, their success, material and otherwise. Because, of course, worship is that which is the giving of that which has worth to the one that we believe has all worth it literally means to give worth to something that is what they believed they were doing but all for personal gain and what about in our culture what are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of personal gain What are we willing to to leave behind, to expend, to sacrifice for the sake of the things that we can get out of it? Whether that's globally, nationally, locally, personally. What are we sacrificing for the sake of what we might gain? I'll leave you with that question. Because it's into that context and I wanted to spend a while in that context for this one reason. Is that to understand Elijah is to understand the context in which he was working in. And we're introduced to Elijah. Elijah literally bursts onto the scene with no slow introduction. His name literally in in Hebrew means, my God is Yahweh. Because in the Old Testament, your name and your calling are all wrapped up in one. Who you are is your calling. They were all together. And so his name means, my God is Yahweh. And he was speaking against the gods of Baal and all the rounds that surround it. And so we're introduced to him in verse 1 of chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbur and Gilead. And Elijah responds to the call of God to challenge a culture where other gods that bring death are worshipped. He responds to that call. We live in a culture where the enemy is real. I don't want to be too down on a Sunday evening, but the enemy is real. Jesus spoke in no uncertain terms about the power of the enemy. He says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In fact, one of the names that the Canaanites gave to Baal was Baal Zavul. Jesus comes along, takes that name, Baal Zavul, and comes up with the name and applies it to the devil himself, Beelzebub. Zabub. What was manifest in the worship of Baal was evil at its extreme. The enemy is real. The enemy, as Jesus said, comes to steal, kill and destroy. And that is what we see around us. We don't have to go too far in so many ways. People's lives are impacted by the work of the enemy. Things are stolen from people. And I'm not talking about the odd phone every now and again or the odd bag left at a train station that we never recover. I'm talking about the things that are deep down parts of our very identity. And there are men and women here amongst us today who feel like parts of our identity have been stolen from us, who feel like like parts of our identity have been destroyed by the work of the enemy, who feel in some ways that parts of us have been killed. Because that is the work of the enemy. That is what he is about. That is his mandate, his mission statement to come and kill and steal and destroy. And so often we personalize it. We think it's about that person or that group of people, that community. And we make it about them. And we forget that behind all of this is an enemy who is out to steal, kill and destroy. It's not actually about the individuals because every one of us, no matter how bad we may feel we are, is loved by God whose love extends from our past into our future. He loves you. You're not a bad person, but there is an enemy who is at work, who is about breaking us. Life is being destroyed in front of us. And unknowingly, we, we are in a culture where we worship the very things that cause death. We see money and the pursuit of it being pursued at all costs. Accumulate more, get more stuff, get the latest upgrade, must cost me more, get myself into debt. It destroys us. Relationships are disposable. We sleep with one person, sleep with the next person, sleep with the next person. And that destroys the relationships. And it's not like any of those things in and of themselves are bad. God created sex. Money is good when it's used in a good way. Jesus spoke more about money than it did, by the way, about anything else. More than heaven and hell and love. He talked about money. Those things are not bad in and of themselves. And it's interesting what the enemy does. He's also called the liar. The father of lies. You know what a good lie is? It's when it sounds like the truth. And he takes the things that we, that we hold dear to us, the things that God created as good for us, and twists them and make them sound similar, but a, a complete uh, twisting of what they are. We live in an Instagram culture where our identity and our self-confidence and our security is based on how many likes and comments and shares we get. I'm guilty. Can I get over 100 likes on this photo? By the way, I am on Instagram. um, (laughs) At John March. uh, you'll, You'll find me later. But you know, it's true. And every time, bits of us are eroded away. Because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's into that context... That we are called as ordinary people to be people that bring life. Jesus said, that doesn't end there by the way, the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy, although I've spoken about it a lot, because Jesus comes in and says, but I have come to give you life and life in abundance, in fullness, in technicolor. He has come for you to give you life more than you could ever imagine. The things that we naturally pursue that we think give us life don't give us life at all. They slowly erode away at us. We think that the grass is greener over over there, but the life that is found in Jesus Christ is as green as it gets. And so we are called as ordinary people to enable others to find that life. The thing is, it's not about being good or bad. This is about life or death. Elijah was faced with the same thing. God calls his people as he always does. Ordinary people who live extraordinary lives because the spirit of God is in them. To point others to him. It's the same spirit of God that empowered Elijah. So. How do we begin to start living extraordinary lives? Four quick things this evening. An A, B, C, and a D to living an extraordinary life. What did Elijah do? First thing was, he was all in. He was absolutely committed. We look at this first verse. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That is a ballsy commitment. He is all in. He's absolutely all in. He makes this absolute vow and promise that there will be no rain on the land except at his word. He's he's gone, gone for it. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. The God of, uh, of Baal that supposedly promised them life, he says, that's not going to happen anymore, guys. He is all in. He's committed. And he's committed to God, a living God. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, he says. This is a God that doesn't just die and needs to be summoned up from the death by some weird religious act. This is a God who lives is living and active. In fact, this is a God who in the person of Jesus dies so that we might live. Doesn't require our death or the death of those we love in order for him to get a bloodthirst. So he's committed to God and he's committed secondly to Israel. The God of Israel, he says. Elijah loves his people and is committed to them. God is for you. He is for you. He is for you. God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus. God is for the people that he loves. And that commitment, that all inness of Elijah comes in the form of service. The God whom I serve, he says. And he's exclusive. It's all about the God whom he serves but not for his own personal gain. And there are some of us here who need to be all in. There are some of us who have been sitting on the fence for far too long, and God is saying to you, are you in? Because this is, if you want to start living an extraordinary life, you need to be all in. There's no lukewarm here. Are you in? Doesn't mean he loves you any less if you say not now. But are you all in? If You want to see the kind of extraordinary life that you talk about? Are you all in? Secondly, he was all in and secondly, he was bold. He speaks to Ahab, uh, the king. I love this bit of the passage here. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, no one knows who uh, who Elijah is. They have to describe who he is and where he came from. Ahab, everybody knows. They don't even give him his title. He's the king, says to Ahab. And he's bold. He goes up to him. What's interesting about Elijah, he's so ordinary that that even modern-day scholars don't know where Tishba is even now. He came from a backwater place in a backwater family, and no one knew who he was, and he'd ruled himself out, and he burst onto the scene as this guy from Tishba in Gilead. No one knows where it is now. Ahab, everyone knew who he was. He He had the power of life and death over every single individual. And what you get from Elijah is this courageousness, this boldness. He doesn't kind of call the king up and say, I'd like to book an appointment. I'd love to chat to you about a few things that I think need to be changed. Oh, yeah, I can fit you in a couple of months, five-minute slot. You'll be fine. Chat to my courtiers. Elijah shows up uninvited and says, listen, this is the way it's going to be. That God thing you've got going on with your wife, not going to happen anymore. Because the God I believe in, my God is Yahweh, is going to make sure that the dew and rain doesn't fall on the ground anymore. He has that courage and that boldness. It challenges the heart of Ahab's family. He's married to the priestess of this cult. He's speaking at the heart personally of King Ahab, not just some theoretical thing. Thirdly, he was captivated. Because he had this sold out all inness, he was willing to go anywhere and do anything. He was captivated by the calling of God on his life, which meant he listened and obeyed. In verse 2, we get this uh, passage come up. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbur and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And the next verse, if it's there, I'm hoping. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and have instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. Literally, this guy's next instruction is, go to the worst place that you know of, because it is a terrible place, the Kerithazine, and you will be fed by birds. You mean I can't stay in this nice fertile place? Nope. You mean I can't just pick that apple off the tree and just make some bread here? Nope. You're going to be fed by ravens in a ravine. And you're going to stay there until I tell you otherwise. He was so all in, he was absolutely commit, captivated by God. Fourthly, and finally, he was dependent. His obedience meant he trusted God to provide. If we want to start living extraordinary lives it means that certain things are not going to be mapped out for us. And so many of us are waiting for the whole blueprint of our lives before we're willing to take one step. Elijah didn't know one step until the next step. He just didn't know from one step to the other. And where it begins is he begins to step out. It seems like he's making it up as he's going along, or you could say he's so dependent that he just is happy to wait for the next instruction when God tells him. He goes to say something scary to King Ahab, and then he's like, now what? And God says, well, now go to the ravine and be fed by birds. I mean, literally like crazy stuff. And he goes through with it. He's so dependent on God. He doesn't need the whole picture to obey. You see, if you trust God, it's so much easier to obey. When you trust someone implicitly, my kids are young enough, they still trust me. Fools. Um... (laughs) And, and when I tell them to, to not cross the road when it's busy traffic, they, they generally believe me because they trust me. And so it's easy to obey me. It's getting a bit more difficult the older they get, but they generally obey me. When we trust someone, we find it easier to obey. He is absolutely dependent. And he spends ages in this ravine being prepared by God for what he was called to do. And he spent so much time there. And the thing is, being being dependent on God also means being uh, 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 waiting for his timing. We, he just waits in this ravine. And so many of us are so impatient with God. We, we have an agenda and a time and I want to do it younger and quicker and faster and better. But if you go through scripture, there's countless... Men and women of God who go through significant waiting periods, Abraham 100 years, Moses 40 years, you name it, Jesus himself 30 years before his ministry really kicked off. And yet we want something now, yesterday, today, whenever, just not, not, in, a, not in two months' time. Are we prepared to wait? Because God is as much part of the preparation as he is part of the destination. God has called us to be a prophetic people, to be people in our workplaces, in our colleges and universities, who point people to God through our words and actions, to point people away from death towards life, to be ordinary people, but living extraordinary lives, because we've decided to be all in, because we've decided to be bold and captivated and then dependent on God. The word ordinary actually comes from the Latin. it means orderly, that which we have control over. See, for me, I believe that an extraordinary life is actually about letting go of something. To live an extraordinary life is to let go of the ordinary, the things that we control. And as we get older, we want to control more things. We want to make our future more predictable. We want to control the orderliness of life. But I believe that we're called to let go of that. and. In letting go, we allow space for God to give us the extra. The extra. So that we can be with God and, and, and being change makers in our world. To be co-workers with him. I believe we are called to be those change agents in our world. Not through anything that we have to offer. But by willing to be willing to say, yep, I'm in. The one who holds all things in his hands, who calls birds to feed his people. Are you in? I want to pray for us to be ordinary people who say, I'm in. And Whatever that is, whatever the call, to the people that you're called to, to go against the tide. But it's God who by his spirit empowers us to do that. To be people that bring life and not death. Let's pray together. Why don't we stand? Just want to pray that the Spirit of God just will make Himself known to us. He's been here as we've shared together. But often it's about us tuning in. And I just want to encourage you if in the same way that we receive a gift, the Spirit of God gives us so many things, but the thing that he gives us most is life and life in abundance. So I just want to encourage you, as you would do receiving a gift, just to put out your hands in front of you if you feel comfortable doing that. Often I find it's helpful for me. It's not about God. God could do whatever he wants, but it's helpful for me. I'm just going to ask the Lord just to make himself known through the power of his Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill this place. Don't worry about what anyone else is doing. Don't worry about whatever the person beside you is thinking or saying or whatever. Just do business with God. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's just wait. We can wait for... A few moments, come, Lord Jesus. And I'm just pray. Uh, The Lord, I want to particularly pray about this area of boldness. I just feel like the Lord wants to give you guys courage for the kind of things that he's leading you in. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to act in spite of it. And that only comes because God emboldens us. So Holy Spirit, I just pray you breathe through this place and gift your people a courageousness, a boldness to make radical choices might be a radical conversation they've got to have this week with their friends it might be about a relationship that needs to end it might be about changing direction career wise it could be any number of things but come Holy Spirit and and give us a courage as you did with your people I think the other thing I want to pray is that the Lord would would grant clarity to each one of you. Some of you who are just in a stage of life or or maybe you've been there for a while where you just don't know which end is up. And I pray the Lord would really speak clearly as he did to Elijah. Speak clearly to each one of us. Just allow you to do business with God. and And as we sing, it might be that you don't want to sing. You just want to do business with the Lord. That's okay. dwell in this place. You're here. You may as well make the most of it. Amen.